We are in 2 Corinthians 4 on verse 4. I just introduced this verse. I didn't get a chance to delve as deeply into it as I would like to last week. So today we're going to look at 2 Corinthians 4, 4. And uh, the idea of light, one of the concepts that's important here is the idea of light and, and what, what is spiritual blindness and how do we, um, how does God overcome that, I should say. And this is a theme that we're going to kind of look at also in John. The Gospel of John, starting in the very first chapter, uses light as an analogy for the spiritual truth of the Gospel that came uh, in the person of Jesus Christ. So, first of all, though, we want to begin with prayer. Let's do so. Heavenly Father, thank you for another uh, Sunday morning to gather with your dear ones to open the Scriptures together to pray together, to fellowship together, to exhort one another, encourage one another, to um, look into the uh, wonders of our mutual salvation. We also, Lord, pray again for the ones who listen around the world on the Internet. May they also uh, be included in in this fellowship and, and in this discussion from afar. May they also see the glory of the light of the gospel that's revealed here in your word. So we thank you, and we give you the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, this morning, Second Corinthians 4.4. 4. It, it's, um, we'll have to start reading with verse 3, so we start at the beginning of a sentence. Well, yes. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, and in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Um, I was just thinking about that as, as uh, something that happened this week as I was praying for the, the flock around the world that listen in on the Internet. They actually interact with these things, too, because I get emails from them asking about things about the passage that we're, that we're studying. And uh, so that, that way, you know, they can actually interact. Well, I got an interesting um, uh, email from from a person who had written a couple of things on a blog about why, what are the purpose of parables. And, and the reason he thought it was important was that in uh, many people are saying, that, uh, people in the seeker movement or the emergent movement, what have you, are saying that parables are stories to make spiritual things more easy to understand. And so what this fellow, uh, who's a young man in his 20s, he wrote a blog just quoting what Jesus said when they asked him why he spoke in parables. And, and, and the point was to bring judgment hardening so that they wouldn't understand. Uh, that hearing they may, you know, their ears become dull, and hearing they may not hear, and seeing they may not see. And it, that, that statement from Isaiah 6 is cited in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. Five times Isaiah 6 is cited and as uh, uh, applied to the New Covenant or the New Testament ideas, that there's a judgment of hardening. And so I read the guy's essays, and they were very well done, and I pointed out that uh, we maybe have discussed this before, but if you go to Matthew 11, you can see clearly why it's like that. And it isn't that God hasn't revealed anything. That's not what it's talking about. But that God has revealed it because he sent his son Jesus Christ to walk on the face of the earth, who, who, made, who preached to them and who did many miracles, and they had every reason to believe he was who he claimed to be. But they rejected him because of bad motives. Because they, they, they didn't want to lose political power or they, they had various reasons for rejecting Jesus. So Jesus said, because they refuse to repent at the signs he's done, therefore, uh, they're going to come under this judgment of hardening. And so having come under the judgment of hardening, they get everything in parables. But then he explained the meaning of the parables to his disciples who did have eyes to see and ears to hear. Now, let me read Matthew 11 just to give you the background of that, and then I'm going to make an application for our passage here. 
it says here, now, first of all, in verse, um, verse 15, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. But then uh, look at verse 16. But what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace who call out to other children and said, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, you did not mourn. For John came neither eating or drinking. They say he has a demon. Son of man came eating and drinking. They say a gluttonous and a man and a drunkard, a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. Now, what's the point? The point was this generation, which if you got the latest CIC, I, I explained that. This generation, in the sense of the ones who wouldn't listen to God, they wanted to be in charge. They want to say, we're going to play the tune and you dance to our tune. We're not going to give you the authority in our lives. You're not going to be the one who speaks for God and tells us how we must come to God. We're going to play the flute. You better start dancing. And Jesus gave proof that they wouldn't listen to anybody because John the Baptist came and preached the truth to them. Being somewhat of an ascetic out in the wilderness, they didn't like him. They said he had a demon. So Jesus came and went to the parties and, and interacted with the, even the sinners, and they said he's a party goer. In other words, we don't want God to speak to us through anybody. Not through John the Baptist, not through Jesus, not through anybody. We're happy the way we are. We want to be in charge. Okay, so that's their hard heart of this. Now look at what happens next. He's, then, he, then he said this, verse 20, Then he began to reproach the cities in which most of his miracles were done. So they'd already seen the miracles, Okay. Because they did not repent. Verse 21, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it would be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than you. And, and you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have repented would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say it will be more tolerable. So, okay, that's the background. Now, look at verse 25. This is the key, verse 25. And at that time, Jesus answered and said, I praise thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou didst hide these things from the wise and intelligent and didst reveal them to babes. Yes, Father, for thus it is well-pleasing in thy sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So they had seen the miracles. They had all the evidence anybody could ever ask for that Jesus was indeed who he claimed to be. And they said, no, you don't dance to our piping of tunes. We don't want you. We're not going to listen to you. We're not going to listen to John the Baptist. And whatever you say and whatever you do, we don't want anything to do with it. So Jesus says, you've hid these things, Father, from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. So then what were the parables for, as, as according to Isaiah 6 citation? To keep them from any further. Because they rejected the light they had. God was hiding any further light from them. But in the parables, he is revealing truth. But that truth is only understood by the disciples. And then with Jesus explaining it. Now the people say uh, that Jesus taught in parables to make it more easy to understand. Ignore what Jesus said himself about parables. Plus they ignore the fact that uh, if they've done any kind of study, any kind of research, any kind of study of the New Testament, they would have known that there's nothing more difficult to understand than the parables. And if you, some of the parables have had scholars scratching their heads about for centuries and, uh, and trying to bring the light, because they are somewhat cryptic and hidden. So what, what's going on is that people are wanting to justify the idea that instead of clear Bible preaching and gospel teaching, they do skits and dramas and little ditties and... Because then people are going to get that. See, they're going to understand a little skit and a little drama, but they won't understand clear Bible teaching. But it just doesn't work that way. And that's what this guy, this guy who was a reader or, or listener to our, our stuff, and he quoted this section right here in his little article on the web. Very, I wrote him back, so very well done, and he was very astute. That's exactly the way it is. People don't get the gospel just by watching somebody do a skit. 
they get it through the words that are taught, the very words of God that should be proclaimed. In, uh, it should, we renounce the hidden things. Make it clear. Make it straightforward. The, the reason people reject the gospel is not because they cannot understand it in the sense of knowing what the words mean. People reject the gospel because of spiritual hardness of heart. Okay? So, the case, now why do they reject it? Well, here's what it says. In the case, in, in whose case, the God of this world blinded their minds, we talked about this a little bit last week, of the unbelieving, so that they may not see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So it's not veiled because Paul didn't make it clear. It's not veiled because nobody could ever understand such a thing. It's, it's easy enough to get the concepts, but it's veiled because of spiritual hardness, just like under the old covenant with Moses. Now, light is an interesting uh, uh, thing. And I think I talked about the three genitives, light of the gospel, light of the glory, light of Christ. Uh, so Christ Jesus is Lord, is, is bringing light and shining light and, and bringing glory into a sinful world. Now, that should... Um, yes, uh, Brian. When God blinds, puts the blinders on people, what is Satan's role in that? Well, Satan, you know, God has, has means, okay? So God cannot lie. Uh, let me explain that, the judgment of reprobation. I know we talked about it a couple of times. It's certainly pertinent to this. God doesn't actively deceive people because God cannot lie. People are deceived by nature and uh, are spiritually blind by nature. All God has to do to harden somebody is remove light or remove restraint. The more God removes restraint, the more wicked sin sinners get. Now, the sinners aren't upset about that. They, they want God to remove the restraint. All right? If you think about it, the ultimate removal of restraint, and we, read, we studied this at Thessalonians, is during the Great Tribulation, right? The restrainer is removed. And then the world is allowed to boil over into everything they wanted to do. So God isn't directly the agent of them doing evil. He just restrains it less than he is now. Okay, so what's going on, like with this hardening of the parables, God is just... You don't want light. You saw the miracles. You don't want to repent. You don't want Messiah unless he'll do your bidding. All right, you just get parables. And their own heart. And Satan is, is always trying to deceive. Because, see, it's, it's Satan's nature to lie. He's the liar and the father of lies. So the, the less God restrains, the more Satan's lies penetrate into people's brains. Uh, Bill. Uh, well, if God doesn't take an active role in uh, in uh, causing blindness, um, could you comment on Isaiah chapter 44, uh, verses 18, where uh, they go over uh, in detail what happens to an idolater? And it says in 18, They have not known nor understood, for he hath shut their eyes that they cannot see, and their hearts that they cannot understand. Great. It's, it's God that shut their eyes. That's right, this but it, is, it doesn't mean he doesn't have an agent. I mean, all, all God has to do is remove light and everybody's blind. You know, by re removing his own light, he shuts their eyes. All right. That, that's how I understand it. No, that's, that's, because that's, I'm an intralapsarian. Now, if I was a supralapsarian, I would say God directly decrees that they do evil. But I... Um, I don't like that theology. I think it makes God the cause of evil. All right. Uh, but well, let's not get into that now, the Lapsarian positions. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> All right. I, I, see, I'm being merciful. Okay, now we were talking about, okay, John, uh, what do I want to do next? Let's look at some passages in John. Let's have a few people. Uh, Dick, could you read John 1.14? And Joanne, John 3, 19 to 21. And then uh, Gretchen, John 8, 12. And we could probably spend more time in John, but there's a theme in John that's about light coming into the world and the world preferring darkness. Amen. Yep. Okay. So let's, let's look at some of that and apply it to this. John 1, 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and he saw his glory 
as of the only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Yeah, so the Word became flesh and tented, literally in the Greek, it says tented, pitched his tent, which is an allusion to the Old Testament tabernacle, among us, and we beheld his glory, right? The glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That verse is so loaded with Old Testament allusions, it's just, I, I can't hardly read it without wanting to preach on it. But uh, the, the idea that, well, then when God pitched his tent in the Old Testament, they beheld the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud, and then they knew that the glory was in the inner tavern, or the holiest place, and they couldn't go in there. And so here, Jesus is the tabernacle. He pitches his tent amongst people, and they actually behold God's glory in the very person of Christ. And full of grace and truth is an allusion to Mount Sinai when um, Moses went there to see the glory of God, and it was so profound that he had to be hid in the cleft of the rock. And when the Lord passed by Moses, he said, The Lord, the Lord, full of loving kindness and truth, and has said, which what has said is loving kindness, and and various theologians, including one of some of that I had at seminary in the early 90s, were pointing out that the the New Testament conception of grace is is very much. Uh, like or synonymous with the Old Testament idea of hesed. That God shows loving kindness is God showing grace. So when John says that Jesus is full of grace and truth, it's an allusion to Moses on Mount Sinai and the glory of God coming by. So what he's saying in no uncertain terms is that Jesus, the, the incarnate Word, is God Himself in the midst of His people, and he's, and he's got the most prominent attributes of God revealed in the Old Testament, full of grace and truth. And we're seeing glory in the person of Christ. So that, that's a fabulous passage. And then John three nineteen to 21. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. All right, so the light comes, and those that prefer darkness, whose deeds are evil, run from it. Those who are of the truth, of the truth, and uh, are, would be people whose God's light has shined in their hearts, they, they come to the light because they, they want to know more. So how do you know you're converted? Well, you have a love for the truth. You're, if you're converted, you're of the truth. And when you're converted by God's grace, you love the things you used to hate. And you're wanting God to bring more light. And the more light he brings, the more excited you get about it. Can you say amen to that? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and, uh, and if you're not converted, the more light that gets shined, it makes you more uncomfortable. Right? Because you know that, man, even as Christians, we know that we need grace, too. We, we realize we're sinners. But when you're totally lost, you can't stand these people telling you that you're going to go to hell. <laughs> right? Amen. So get away from me. I don't want to hear any more about going to hell and repenting. Okay? And so... Uh, <laughs> That's why I'm such a strong advocate of gospel preaching within the church and Bible teaching within the church. Because what the Bible teaching and gospel preaching in the church does is it, it, it brings sanctification of the people who are of the truth. Because Jesus said, um, sanctify them in, in your word. Your word is truth. And it brings conviction to those who are lost. And those who are convicted will either be converted or they'll get so tired of being convicted, they'll leave. And like it says in that passage, they'll go away. Well, what is that doing? Well, it's making the church the body of Christ. It's adding members to it. And it's causing less and less people that really don't know the Lord to want to be there. I mean, our desire is always for conversion. And we're saying, come, sit, sit down, sit, sit under the means of grace, sit under the Word of God, 
and who knows, so people uh, that aren't sure, people who are lacking assurance. Sit under the teaching of the Word. Uh, are you, are you, do you know you're converted? Well, sit under the Word. Who knows, the race of God may come and shed light in your heart. Even Wesley said that, and he was an Arminian. Okay, all right, go ahead. One, one of the ways you know that you're sharing the gospel accurately is uh, either the person will get mad or they'll get glad. <laughs> they'll realize that, yes, this person did come to me and share the gospel, and I can rejoice in that. But if you're exposing somebody's sin through sharing the gospel, it's not a pleasant thing for that person. Yeah. I, well, I got mad when people first started sharing the gospel with me. And I know exactly what made me mad. Well, of course, my sin nature. But the thing that really made me mad was that they were suggesting that they had some status with God that I didn't have. Okay? And that, and that, and that some people were right with God and others weren't. And I had a sort of universalistic idea that the good Lord is there and, and he, you know, he doesn't... You know, he's not so concerned about these things. And, I, and that's what makes you mad. And that's what made these people mad that Jesus preached to. Because Jesus came on the scene of history and suggested to, to the top religious leaders they weren't right with God. They couldn't stand that somebody could... How could you tell us we're not right with God? How dare you? Don't you know who we are? Yeah, you're lost sinners. Okay. All right. Gretchen, what's your passage? My passage is uh, John 8, verse 12. Okay, John 8, verse 12. Uh, When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Okay, Jesus announced, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. So God shines into hearts light. And once you have the light of Christ, you'll never walk in darkness again. Isn't that amazing? So John makes it a theme that Jesus is the light coming into the world and that men love darkness, but the ones who are of the truth embrace Jesus and his word and they walk in the light. So very powerful analogy. I'm going to just give us, hand out some more verses here, and then I'm going to quote a couple scholars. Um, Alice, Ephesians 2.2, 2, Troy, Ephesians 6.12, Daniel, Colossians 1 and verse 15. And uh, Linda, Hebrews 1 and verse 3, and Lois, 1 John 5.19. 1 John 5.19. Before we read the verses, I was going to cite... Uh, my, one of my favorite commentaries from Second Corinthians about by a fellow by the name of Garland, and he points this out. <clears throat> quoting, quoting Garland, Satan has been defeated by the cross of Christ, Colossians 2.15. In his death throes, however, Satan still has the strength to besiege human minds and to excite them to embrace and exalt evil rather than God. He continues to try to blind people to his defeat, by leading them to disdain the scandal of the cross and look for glory elsewhere. That's a very important point. Satan's defeated at the cross. Amen. Colossians 2.15. So what is Satan going to fight against more than anything else? The tree, yeah, the preaching of the cross, the truth of the cross. Why, why would he want anybody to know about the very thing that can defeat him? And so Satan is very happy that we preach anything at all as long as it's not the cross. Because only the cross can deliver people from their spiritual blindness. So it's a very good point he makes. The mind, okay, now where's the battlefield? He could, uh, let me back up again. He continues to try to blind people to his defeat by leading them to disdain the scandal of the cross and look for glory elsewhere. The mind, noema, is the chief object of Satan's ploy. Second Corinthians 2.11. This counter-spirit does all in his power to prevent humans from becoming the enlightened subjects of the one true God whose image can be seen in Christ. Humans make themselves susceptible to his wiles with their preoccupation with the transient, unspiritual, earthly realm. The mind blinded by Satan cannot think straight, and it rebels against God's truth. Now, He's pointing out the God of this world. Now, I think I mentioned last week that the word in the Greek for world is age. 
Okay? So this age is characterized by being under this spiritual blindness. And so, um, yeah, actually, if you look in the New Testament Greek Bible, you'll find that every way you can think of, of characterizing the word world is something that is said to be Satan's domain of influence. You see the word cosmos used this way. You see this word for age, ion. And um, you, in fact, in John, Satan is called the ruler, RK, of this world. So how, and, and, and the, the idea is that until God comes in judgment and removes evil and evildoers, the age is characterized by being blinded by Satan. But we who come to the light are not of this age because we are already looking forward to the age to come. All right, now, um, the next... Uh, uh, Alice, you had Ephesians 2.2. 2. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, 1 and 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Okay, so uh, formerly Christians were dead, spiritually dead, and under the power of Satan and the, the things that are working in this world. But in the sons of disobedience, that's a Hebraic expression. Sons of means characterized, and characterized by being disobedient to God. You don't have to be- believe in Satan to be under his power. <laughs> Satan is, doesn't bother him at all when people don't think he exists. That's fine. As long as he's got them captive, he doesn't care if they acknowledge he even exists. Um, Ephesians 6 and verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Okay, so our struggle is against spiritual evil. Now, if you, if you read on Ephesians 6, that passage has been used in a confused way by a lot of people. They think because our struggle is with these spiritual forces in heavenly places, that means we need to identify their names and address them and bind them. Okay, so they start trying to interact with the spirit world directly because they, they well, that's what the verse says. We're supposed to struggle against these things. But if you read on and read about the armor of God, therefore, you see that all of the pieces of the armor are gospel things. The righteousness, faith, salvation, the sword of the Spirit. It all has to do with the gospel. The battles for the mind, not control of territory on planet Earth. And so uh, paganism creeps into various versions of Christianity so easily because that's just how pagans think. Pagans think that it's all about spiritual rulership over various territories and gods of different territories. Christians shouldn't think that way. The whole issue is a gospel issue. It's not a territory issue. Um, I'm going to be... I've been asked to do a seminar in Barbados in November on this very topic. A Christian from Barbados called, or actually emailed me, and said that the Christians on our island are totally into this spiritual warfare thing. And, and they take sort of the paganism that's in the culture, and they bring it right into the church thinking they're fighting it. And so he wants me to come down and do a seminar for five days in order to counteract this and try to offer an alternative to the Christians down there so that they realize that they're just being taken captive by the very thing that God saved them out of. All right, um, I hope I actually make it now that I said that. I'm supposed to, I just haven't got my passport or my airplane ticket. Uh, Colossians 1.15, no, you had one. Colossians 1.15? Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The image of the visible God, firstborn of all creation, is talking about Christ and his preeminence. Firstborn there means preeminent. You maybe heard Ryan talk about that. Um, Colossians 1.15. Oh, uh, excuse me. Hebrews 1.3. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature 
and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Wow, this is a profound statement about the doctrine of Christ in Hebrews 1 and verse 3. Uh, uh, about Jesus and his representation. Now, an interesting word, hypostasis, that, was, that became a key word when the, in the time of the Nicene Creed. The meaning of the, of the Greek word there in Hebrews 1.3, hypostasis, what does it mean? And after the discussion, it came to understand the idea of Christ in having the, sharing the nature of God. And because what was under attack was Christ's deity. The Arians were, were saying, did you read that section about that in, in um, the Truth War? Anybody besides me ever read that Truth War? A few people did. I'm glad I talked some people into it. Wasn't that an interesting uh, section where he talks about the Arian controversy and how it almost took over the church? I found it. Uh, I had studied that before when I studied church history, but not in the detail that MacArthur was talking about it. But the whole church was almost taken over by the Arians, and because this guy was so smooth and so uh, uh, he, he made little, even songs and jingles so people could remember his doctrine. And I know one of them I, I, I learned was when I was in ch- taking church history was there was a time when he was not. There was a time when he was not. And so everybody could learn that real easy. So, uh, so they were de- Arius was denying the deity of Christ by doing so in a very winsome and nice way. And MacArthur's point was that's how these people creep into the church. Uh, the wolves creep in not by uh, coming in a wolf suit, but by being winsome and charming and having a very easy-to-understand doctrine. Amen. You know, anybody can do this. It's simple. There was a time when he was not. But it's a damnable heresy. Amen. And uh, the interpretation of Hebrews 1.3 was one of the key things at the Nicene debate about the issues. And even though Arius lost at Nicaea, he didn't go away. He just kept on spreading his heresy around the, the um, Roman Empire. Okay, uh, 1 John 5.19. We know that we are of God, but the whole world lieth in wickedness, it says. John and 1 John and 2 John and 3 John is concerned with truth. It's one of the key issues. It was, it was the Gospel of John was all about that, and it was written later than the others. So, having seen church history progress... If our dating is correct, around 90 A.D. for John's writings, he had watched 60 years of church history unfold before his eyes. And after those 60 years, he realized the most important issue was the truth. And the truth about Jesus Christ, who he is and what he did, because that's what was always under attack. The truth is always the thing that's under attack, because the truth is the very nature of God is truth. In reading the, uh, the truth wars, in Jude 6, 1, 6, it says, And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Yep. Yeah, actually that whole book, The Truth Wars, is based on, the, on, the, on, on Jude. Right. It's, a, it's an extended discussion of Jude. My, I think that uh, the King James there said... Uh, power of wickedness, but I think in the Greek it says this, we know that we are of God, the whole world lies in the evil one, the evil one, not just wickedness in general, but Satan in particular. So Satan is called the ruler of this world, the God of this age, and it's said that the whole world, now here when Paul, when, excuse me, John is using the word world, that word cosmos has a range of meanings in the New Testament, all right? Sometimes it just means the universe, Sometimes it means the theater of human affairs. I'm, I'm getting this from the Theological Dictionary in the New Testament. But in this, in this type of usage, it means the world in its rebellion and opposition to God. And it's, it's a pejorative statement about the spiritual condition of the cosmos. And so when John says the whole world lies in the wick, wicked one, but we are of God, what he's saying is that in a spiritual sense, we are not of this world. I mean, we, we're, we're still in the cosmos since the universe. We're still on planet Earth. 
We're still involved in the theater of human affairs, you know, uh, speaking and listening and being part of the, of the commerce of the world. But we're not a part of the world in its rebellion against God. We've been saved out of the world. And so John uses the word that way many times. And so um, I've used that verse, 1 John 5:19, to try to correct people that are in these false spiritual warfare doctrines. They're trying to find out which demon is over Minneapolis, for example. And then when they find out that they're going to get together and shout at that demon until it goes away, and then Minneapolis is not going to be sinful anymore. <laughs> or, or whatever, you know. Revival will break out or all these good things will happen. You know, so I, I, I use this verse. It says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, or the one we're studying. The whole world is blinded by Satan. The issue is, this isn't Minneapolis, this is not territorial spirits or St. Louis Park or Minnesota or America or anything else like that. It's, this is a global thing. It's worldwide, and it's true of everyone who is sitting in darkness. Amen. And so you're either under the power of the wicked one, even if you don't believe there is such a being, or you're of God and you've been delivered from him. Amen. And the way out is through the gospel and the cross. And so that just... It should be easier to understand. I think it's a lot, the truth is simpler in some ways than the heresies are. They're a lot more complex and difficult to understand. Um, what else did I want to say? I had another one more citation. Anybody have any more questions about 2 John 4 4? The God of this world we talked about, blinded minds. I think we mentioned that. The battle is the mind. Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 10 lofty thoughts that exalt himself against the knowledge of God. So the spiritual warfare is a battle for the mind. And I've had people say in the past, why do you always have to worry about where things come from and whether they're true? <laughs> have you heard that? Well, well what's wrong with you? And I, and I think, well... Well, I, I don't know. When you go to eat, let's just do a lesser or greater arg, uh, argument. If you went to the grocery store or, or you found, let's say you found some food out on the street or in a garbage can, I mean, would you want to know where it came from? Yeah, I want to know where my food came from. For my, and would I want to know whether it's poison or nutritious? Well, I'd want to know that too. Okay, so I would say that's the lesser. The greater thing is our spiritual well-being is far more important than our physical well-being because it goes on for eternity. And when it comes to our spiritual food, do you want to know where it comes from? Yes. Because you want to know if it's true. Because error is never going to sanctify anybody. Okay, yes, Kathy. Okay, how does one discern the twists? That's a lifetime process of being Bereans, of studying, studying the Word of God continually. And uh, the, it's, it's so important, and, and God uses all of us, where I believe the priesthood of every believer, but it's particularly important as far as the New Testament that elders are able to guard the flock. Because there's always going to be uh, baby Christians. There's always going to be people who are more vulnerable than others. And so, therefore, there should be those who labor hard in word and doctrine and are able to help. But it, it, the twists just never go away. They, they, they continually happen. If you just think about what happened in the lifetime of the Apostle Paul, the various things uh, that came up. Uh, in Galatia, the Judaizers came and told people they couldn't be saved unless they got circumcised and followed the law of Moses. And he anathematized them. Then in Colossae, these deeper life teachers came and said, you know, touch not, taste not, handle not. We, we have entered, we've, we've entered a higher plane, uh, uh, we've, a higher level of spiritual existence. We've uh, seen visions. And Paul had to correct that in Colossae. And then in Corinthians comes the super-apostles. 
And it's a little harder to understand exactly what the super apostles were teaching because Paul only, you have to just sort of read between the lines and there's this lost letter that, that had some of the content. But we can see what, what their claim was. Their claim was that they had better visions, better teachings, and they were better to listen to than Paul. They were more articulate. They were more uh, handsome. They were all these things Paul wasn't. And they, and they had spiritual experiences. And, uh, and so Paul has to defend himself against super apostles in, in Corinthians uh, or in Corinth. So these things will never, this is, like MacArthur said in his book, this is a war. Amen. And war is not a pleasant thing to be in. War is serious business, as he said. But we have no option. We either engage in the battle or we lose it. And so, unfortunately, oh yeah, yes. I, I feel that having grown up and being the world's best Lutheran, and then also in the Catholic Church, that, oh, I don't throw that around. <laughs> anyway, uh, I was so impressed by seminary, robes, the whole works, that I thought they knew everything and I didn't know a thing. And when the, the Lord blessed me with his Holy Spirit and I, my eyes were open. I was going, wow, it does say that. Look at it, it really, really does <laughs> yeah. say that. Yeah, you didn't have to have a guy in a robe telling you what it meant. <laughs> and, and the Lord told me, and then I was called a fool and a dumb da-da-da because I was so excited about that. And but being a baby Christian, I felt, well, they know more than I do. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, uh, fancy robes doesn't make somebody right. <laughs> No, you don't get a mic. I'll just stand here. Anyway, they mentioned anger earlier, Robert. Mentions anger. People are going to be angry with you. Peter said you have to rejoice when they're angry with you. What you want is a resume of one, a man 30 years angry with you. 20 years, 35 years. They're going to be angry with you because are you going to talk to them for 30 years? You know, just talk to them a little bit and they're angry with you and you go your way. Peter said we can rejoice. When we got the truth. So you talk to them 30 years later. Maybe they even told you against the cement wall they want to kill you. But if you're a good fisherman, like God said, you're going to fish for men's souls. Fishermen go in all kinds of weather. If the net's broken, they, they sew it up. They never quit. They'll fish till the day they die. Well, we're fishing for men's souls, and they're going to be angry, and we should be thankful that they're angry. What worries me is when they don't even get angry. And another thing the scientist said about the blindness. He said, I don't care if it's true that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Every word of God is true. I don't care if it's all true. I will not have no God tell me what to do. There's the explicit. He's not blind. He knows the truth. He knows that Christ rose from the dead. He, he will not have a God tell him what to do. So man is guilty. Yeah. Yeah, that's scary when people get that hard. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I have another citation here from a scholar who also sees an analogy here with the Exodus narrative, like I was pointing out in John. But he sees one here in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. And let me quote. I think this is Barrett? No, Barnett. The Exodus narrative forms the background of this passage. In response to Moses' request, God revealed his glory to him, but he was not permitted to see the face of God. Exodus 32.18-23. On the Damascus Road, Paul, too, saw the glory of God. But there was a shape to it. Paul beheld, quote, the image of God, the glorified Christ. In the heavenly Christ, the invisible God, who cannot be seen, was perfectly and fully revealed, re- revealed himself. Um, Colossians 1.15, which we read. The glorified Christ is the ultimate and eschatological revelation of God. There is nothing more that, we, that can or will be seen of God. Remember, it says no man has seen God. But we've seen the only begotten of the Father. And so we see Christ. What Paul said with his eyes, and that what Paul saw with his eyes in that unique moment, he now sets forth by means of the truth of the gospel, addressed to the ears of the hearers, by means of which the light of God comes into darkened hearts. Light from the glorified Christ streams into the heart through hearing the gospel. God's revelatory image, the heavenly Christ, shown to the apostle, becomes the revelation of God for those who hear and receive the gospel. Then he goes on, he says, quote, The darkness is universal, demonic, and cosmic. Yet into the darkness of these blinded minds, light, 
God's own glory, now manifested in Christ, shines forth from the gospel Paul proclaims. Here, once again, is the apostolic openness and boldness, the eschatological disclosure of the truth of the Word of God, by means of which these are enabled to to uh, to see whose blindness had been overcome by God's light. So what more reason do we need to preach the gospel? The only way light is ever going to shine into anybody's heart is through the gospel. There's no other way. And so if we're interested in people being uh, snatched out of the fallen dark world, um, then we should preach the gospel. So let me read this on into the next verse then. I'm going to, verse 4, we just did, in, in whose case the God of this age has blinded the minds of, of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ as the image of God. But then verse 5 says, um, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. So... This is uh, amazing. This is so profound. In the background of this, remember that they, the Corinthians had decided that Paul was really not that great. He couldn't compare to the super apostles who had gotten their attention. It says his appearance was unimpressive. His speech was contemptible. And, uh, but Paul says to these critics, we don't preach ourselves. Paul, as Paul, can't put light into anybody's heart. But his gospel can. And so we preach Jesus as Lord. Now this, again, is fabulous. It's a shorthand for the gospel itself and all of the things that that entails. There's a figure of speech called metonymy. And that's when a part is used to designate the whole. And there are a number of terms that are used in that way about the gospel, about the cross, the blood. Paul can say any one of those things. And uh, for here, Jesus Christ is Lord. It is a statement about Christ as the master, the ruler, the Lord. And certainly there's more to it than that. Christ means anointed one. So it claims uh, Yeshua, the, the Messiah, Mashiach, Christos in the Greek. That is, uh, that he's the promised one, that he's Lord, says many things about his person. But here, this preaching, Jesus Christ of Lord, includes the content of the gospel. Jesus Christ who came and died for sins and was raised on the third day. So when Paul in 1 Corinthians says that the preaching of the cross, he uses that phrase, the preaching of the cross, it includes all of this. And when he says in 1, or when John says in 1 John 4, any spirit that confesses Jesus Christ come in the flesh, it also includes all of this. And when, when it talks about the blood, it includes the whole personal work of Christ. Would you agree, Ryan? That these, these, are, uh, these aren't like five different Gospels. There's one Gospel, but, but we're expected to know all of these things and, and, all, and have a full-blown doctrine of Christ in the back of our mind. So when we hear Jesus Christ is Lord, we're think, we should, our minds should immediately be thinking, this is the one who preexisted as God. This is the one who came and was born of a virgin. This is the one who lived a sinless life. This is the one who did the miracles. This is the one who died for sins. This is the one who was bodily raised. This is the one who ascended into heaven. This is the one who sits at the right hand of God and makes intercession for us. This is the one who's coming again to bring judgment to all of those who are his enemies and salvation to Israel and institute a kingdom uh, where he sits upon the throne of David. And this is the one who's the promised Messiah. And this is the preeminent one. And everything that would inform our doctrine of Christ, we should be getting more rich and, and, and more well-informed all the time as we study as Christians. All of that tells us what it means that Jesus Christ is Lord. <laughs> oh, thank you. I don't think I've ever got applause at Sunday school before, but that's for the Lord. <laughs> that's for the Lord. He is that. And so, um, that's what Paul preached. And um, it's, it's just sad. You, you know, it breaks my heart when I think of this 
or even in my early days as a Christian, where I got so misguided, we're trying to be hyper pious. I got further and further from the gospel. I was mentioning this to to Robert this morning because I was I'm thinking about my next CAC article, which is going to be on pietism. And I usually spend like four weeks to six weeks thinking about an idea and how I want to write it before I start writing. And I've been talking this over with people and thinking about it. And I, I thought, well, you know, how better to understand pietism than think back to when I was one. I was a pietist. What is a pietist? A pietist who's looking for an experience that's a better experience than ordinary Christians have. All right? And, and, um, and that was me. And you know what it was like when I was a pietist? And this, is, this struck me this morning. I was meditating it on, as I was just driving into church, even though it was a short drive. Here's what struck me. When I was a pietist, I thought the gospel was nothing more than a first step in some process that's a lot more interesting. In other words, if you asked me in the mid-70s, what do you think about the gospel? I said, well, that means people accept Jesus Christ. And, and you know, and that, that's just the start. That's just the beginning. That's how I thought. In other words, the whole idea of Christ and the gospel and the atonement weighed too lightly upon me. It was like a secondary thought or something. Not in, What was more interesting was how the kingdom of God was going to be developed on the earth now. Or what was more interesting was how we had power over demons. Or what was more interesting was how I can uh, be you know, the greatest Christian and I'm going to be world class like it says in that book and, and all these glorious things. And the gospel itself... It fades into the background where it becomes an afterthought. And all it really means is if somebody shows up to the meeting that doesn't know what's going on, we lead them in a sinner's prayer. Okay, if somebody shows up and it's apparent they don't know about Christ, say, okay, say this prayer. Okay, repeat after me. Do I need to do that? Yeah, you repeat after me. That's how you become a Christian. All right, and then they repeat after you. And you say, okay, now start coming to the meetings. And we're going to... We're going we're gonna to find the kingdom of God and we're going to do all these things and some power of God is going to come and all this great stuff. Just come to the meetings. Uh, we're filling the meetings with the unconverted, looking for an experience. And to think to actually spend a 45 minutes or a half hour preaching Christ, preaching the blood atonement, preaching the, the lordship of Christ and the, and the glory of Christ and the gospel... No, that's just, for, that's, that's just the initiation thing. We're, we went past that long ago. That's what pietism's about. So he preached Christ because that is where the light of, of God comes into the dark prison, the dark dungeon that people are ensnared in. And I've cited that uh, hymn to that end about the dungeon flamed with light. I got, a, I got an amazing email this week. This lady, and I've been in contact with her several times. She was one of the people whose churches were taken over by the purpose-driven movement. And the church she was in was, I mean, it was a big, huge battle. She ended up losing her church. And now she drives 35 miles to a church that actually preaches the gospel. But I got an email from her. And she says, a pastor, or however she addressed me, she says, I have to tell you that on June 3rd, I was converted. She says, I always thought I was a Christian since I was nine. And I was too proud to admit that I really wasn't. Because I'd been in the church all my life, was a church person, did all the right things, said all the right things, but I really didn't know the Lord. Is that what it said? She says, I was converted on June 3rd. And now, and now she's, she's it's touching. That, that's why we preach the gospel. There's somebody who, was, who would fight for the integrity of the church against a movement that was taking away what she knew as the youth, but just now I actually totally was converted. So keep preaching the gospel, keep, keep preaching Christ as Lord, because he'll, uh, he'll convert people. So anyhow, that was a gratifying email. If all the angels in heaven rejoice when one sinner repents, shouldn't we join them? <laughs> okay. All right. God bless you. Today, the sermon is from Luke, and we'll be singing, singing about the Lord and preaching about Him and fellowshipping about Him. God bless you.